I'm Dr. Jacqueline Duget, and welcome to What is Black Podcast, the podcast where we discuss topics important to raising healthy and thriving Black children. Um, today, I'm joined by Drs. Rihanna Anderson and Sean Jones. They're both um, psychologists, and they're also um, the hosts and creators of our Mental Health Minute. I say their media empire, right, because they have videos and podcasts and so much more, as well as they're also uh, researchers. Um, before I before I welcome our guests, I just also want to um, give a shout out to one of our um, episodes. Dr. Anderson joined us for, I believe, episode two of the podcast, where she talked about um, talking to kids about race. So please check that out. It's one of the most popular episodes. But I'm happy again to I'm happy to speak with her again, as well as um, Dr. Jones. So welcome. I'm Dr. Anderson and Dr. Jones. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate being here. What an honor. <laughs> Oh man. Oh, thank you. And I love your smiles. Okay. I get, <laughs> I get to see them on video. So I want to talk a little bit about um, your media empire. So our mental health minute, I was wondering if you could um, share with us first about why it was important for you all to um, create our mental health minute. Well, Jackie, let me first start off by saying, I mean, when you call it an empire, I mean, it's really <laughs> hard to just let people down on that. Um, <laughs> we'll try to maintain our, Fabulosity, but um, generally speaking, Sean and I met at a conference early on in our graduate careers, and not only did we share a lot of the same research interests, but as we started talking about the impetus of starting our Mental Health Minute, it was very clear that we both came from communities that had a lot of need, but also um, shared a lot of stigma about what mental health was and a lot of you know, reticence and, and concern about, do I put my business in the streets? Do I air out my dirty laundry? Like, what does that look like? And as burgeoning clinical psychologists, we both knew the importance of getting important, accurate, fun, digestible information out there. So we started the idea of our Mental Health Minute with, with that as really our basis. What, do you, what else you got, Sean? Yeah, you know, I would say, you know, First of all, nail on the head, uh, as always. But, you know, this is my illustrious co-host, so I expect nothing else. Um, you know, I think for us, again, the, the, the other important thing for us was we really, you know, just wanted to make sure that we were able to be, you know, relatable, um, to be, again, kind of fun, relevant, um, taking the pulse of what was going on, uh, but again, also being able to use, uh, again, our burgeoning and continued burgeoning and growing expertise to actually kind of distill or break apart uh, some of the jargon that we often hear associated with mental health. So I want to go back a little bit to the the minute, right? The minute to me was really significant in that our mental health minute, and I just wanted you to sort of break that down, like why minute, not our mental health hour, our mental health saga, right? So, <clears throat> yeah, that, I'm, I'm laughing. Um, so I, you know, I think that Jackie, that was uh, the first thing I'll say is anyone who actually uh, goes and checks out our content, uh, particularly our our video content, you know we'll see that um, rarely are they actually 60 seconds. So it was certainly an aspirational um, notion here. But again, going back to when um, Rihanna and I, Rhea and I first uh, kind of envisioned this, we thought, hey, you know, this is something that is, of course, very important. And at the same time, if if you just had one minute, if you just had 
you know, a quick bit of your day that you could take to reflect on, to think about, to take care of your mental health, what would we want to kind of impart jam pack into those 60 seconds? And so that was the reason for a minute, this idea of something that is quick, that you can take away, that you can apply quickly, right? We know that we live in an age, right, where uh, sometimes our attention spans aren't, you know, going to make our mental health hour a reality, right? But we, we certainly felt that within a minute or two or three, <laughs> we could certainly Whatever. Uh, be able right, to put together uh, some information about what a therapy session might look like or the signs and symptoms of, of common anxiety disorders so that you, at the end of that, again, 60, 120, 180 <laughs> seconds, right, could say, okay, I learned something and I could tell somebody about this, I could apply this, and it doesn't take a lot out of your day. So that, that was the impetus behind the minute. Okay, so now I'm going to to focus now on the media aspect of um, what, the work that you do. And I was just wondering, how do you think the use of media has improved access to information education about mental health and especially for um, communities of color, especially black communities? Yeah, I definitely think <clears throat> there are pros and cons of media. And we actually just did our most recent podcast on this issue in and of itself. So Certainly being able to transfer information widely is really important. So one of the things that you mentioned early is that Sean and I are both researchers. So we're constantly writing these journal articles that we know people in our community will never read, like facts, not only because it's jargony than a mug, but because it costs $25 per article. Like there are some days I have to call Sean and say, can you send me your article? Because I don't have access to it, right? So even people within the academy can't always get access to everything. So certainly people in the community are not getting access to most of our content. But again, even if they did, the jargon, the, the um, time that we're asking people to spend to try to get these nuggets of our information is really quite cumbersome. So this idea of getting blogs or videos or podcasts or whatever it is to people in an accessible format is something that we love and clearly one of the reasons we started our Mental Health Minute. At the same time, <laughs> one of the podcasts that we'll be doing coming up is around this idea of ethics, where people who may not have the expertise, whether they float themselves as experts or they're just coming from their own perspective, they are talking about mental health issues in a uh, relatively uninformed way, either you know to, to benefit themselves, just getting some shine or to spread some of the same stigma or, you know, concern that that lives in the community anyway. So when you have some really vivacious and like, you know, big characters who are saying their opinion or things that they say are facts, but things that we have denounced by and, and large in the like literature, like that is a problem. And it takes a lot to try to go behind them to, and, and, you know, squelch that. But um, I think that's the the double-sided uh, coin of media. I mean, I totally, I totally agree with you, right? Because working with, I mean, you all, I think both of you work with you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's true, right? We, we, especially from a pediatric perspective, right? We talk about media and a lot of times it's demonized, right? A lot of it's like, oh, it's associated with depression. Right. And I know they're, they're sort of mixed 
mixed studies regarding that, but there's also a connection for youth. I think that media does provide and sort of is sort of a bridge to a lot of um, issues and discussions that probably would not have been had if it were, were not presented in a format that may be quick and universal and speaks to um, speaks to their their language right now. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that's absolutely capturing the case in the moment. And I think the other, you know, the other thing that uh, we have to recognize, right, in, in any of these these specialized fields is that as as our world continues to move forward and, you know, become more and more socially connected, right, those of us, right, we don't want to become dinosaurs in our dissemination of information, right, because we anticipate that media is only going to continue to be, you know, utilized in these various platforms um, and and mediums. And so finding that balance that Ree was talking about, that kind of really balancing that kind of double-sidedness, I, I think really needs to be the goal of any of us who are interested in trying to uh, educate, teach, inform, inspire youth and beyond. I love that, Sean. Dinosaurs in our dissemination. That is a fantastic alliteration right there. And Jackie, just to, to um, give one more piece on that, I've been really shocked by the that dinosaur element. Like when people tell me, people in our like University of Michigan um, social media land, or if we're doing other podcasts, when people say, wow, you can really talk about your work in ways that other people can't, it blows my mind that our approach to disseminating our our one hour read of a work down to a minute is so incredibly challenging for most people. But Sean is right that if we don't continue to innovate and, and get with the times, like we too at one point could be potentially outdated if we can't create a one slide infographic or something like that to appeal to folks, you know? So I just wanted to kind of carry on that conversation about using uh, media in a way to um, discuss mental health topics. And it's not maybe maybe in, I'm preference 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 expression. <laughs> okay, I'll say that three three or four times. <laughs> like the issue of like the issue of like tele telehealth, right? Telepsychology, telemental health. And what are your thoughts about? using that sort of technology as well to open up access to mental health services that may not have been there before as a result of um, not using technology before. Yeah. So I'll take a a first pass at this. You know, I'm actually, uh, I, in addition to, to the research that I do, I'm, I'm not currently myself practicing, but I am licensed. And so here at Virginia Commonwealth University, I'm actually a supervisor for some of the graduate students in our program. And so this is a very relevant conversation that we're having right now about how we utilize telehealth, uh, teletherapy. And I, you know, honestly, Jackie, it has opened up my, my thoughts and my eyes to really think about it more deeply. I, I have myself as a, as a clinician never truly done telehealth or teletherapy. Um, you know, I, I, as a, you know, uh, a client myself, like for general health have done like a quick dial in with a med doctor, but I've never done it in the context or given these services in the context of therapy. And so 
you know, I think as I think about it a lot more, there is a lot of benefit. I mean, whether we're thinking about folks who are somehow isolated or who are in rural areas where there are few mental health providers, you know, I think this realm of, of teletherapy can really uh, get folks uh, the help that they may need. Uh, and doing that, right, we have to, there are a lot of, you know, elements that we really have to consider because there are, there's so much about maybe being in the room with your therapist or being able to um, pick up on certain kind of verbal or nonverbal cues that may get lost in the kind of translation of, you know, a, a camera certainly and or a camera um, in some aspects, but certainly things like even like text therapy or email therapy, which is, is also being considered in this broader umbrella of telehealth. So I think there is some uncapped potential there. And it's also going to come with um, its challenges for kind of ironing out some of of the important things that I think we still have to think about. Yeah. No, I, mean, I, think, I think, I mean, I think that's an important perspective. Um, Cause again, on my side, right. Um, pediatrics, we, I've, I've done like one tele telehealth um, with, with children at a, sc- a school based wellness center. But as we, but that, you know, but as we talk more about some of your research, research interests, you know, I've been, I've been really thinking about it lately about how right now a lot of, like I know traditionally I didn't grow up accessing mental health services, right? Because it was taboo. It's like you, you know, you don't even tell the pastor, you don't tell the priest your business, right? Um, Coming from a immigrant family, black family, right? Like all these different layers of identity. And I was just thinking about how, how your use of technologies, social media, videos, podcasts opens up the realm of access and destigmatizing but then how does how do we then further think about how we can utilize technology in a way that also kind of reaches reaches communities that haven't technically been reached out outreach to, especially knowing that we have so few um, physicians of color, psychologists of color, clinicians of color. Does does this technology provide a face and access that wasn't there? Right. So it could be. It could be a way to address health equity in some ways. So I mean, I'm just just thinking, just thinking out loud and processing. No, I think you're you're spot on there, and I think there are a lot of apps that are coming out that are recognizing that, and we we included some of those in our media podcast from a few weeks ago. But um, really thinking about how the ability to text with someone just to kick off a relationship, and then maybe build up to a phone, maybe build up to a camera maybe build up to in person, but there are all levels. So like, it, it's not saying that one is necessarily better per se, because right now what we're arguing is you either come in or you don't. Right. So maybe in person is the best. And we'll find that out with trials as we continue to, to test whether the efficacy of coming in person is the best way, but maybe texting with someone gets you 25% improvement and calling someone is 50% and online is 75%. So we're, we'll be able to reach people, I think, in ways that we didn't and, and test this empirically to see whether or not just having some level of contact is better for folks, particularly those who we weren't reaching at all relative to nothing. No, and I totally, and I totally appreciate that perspective. Like I said, I was just, I was just thinking as we were talking, it's like, oh man, and especially now given the situation, so we're recording this now, um, when you know, 
COVID-19, right? Corona, the coronavirus pandemic. And a lot of providers have now had to sort of rethink how they provide access to care. But in also doing that, you know, I'm reading more and more articles about um, disparities and even access to that care. Because one, people, I guess that's the issue too, right? It's the chicken or the egg. If you weren't even accessing in-person services, it's even more of a barrier to then have someone access technology, but then just thinking about opportunities, right? And and different perspectives. So definitely appreciate it. Appreciate your thoughts on that sort of that impromptu question. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about um, your research and work. So the question I had was, how do you see your work transforming how mental health is talked about, accepted, and practiced, um, especially for Black people, families, and children? Yeah, we're both shaking our head and like scrunching our eyes, which is just as a quick note, I'm going to relate this back to the last question for one second. As researchers, we are constantly asking people these discrete questions on surveys or observing them or like we're, we're, we're engaging in a whole bunch of methods and we're saying this is accurately capturing the full breadth of, of someone's like psychological wellness or whatever. And so we need to also open up, I think, our, our means of um, service as well to, to capture some of those broader ranges um, as well. Anyway, okay, so coming back to this question. So Um, I know that for anyone in my lab, when we're talking about the mental health and well-being of black children and their families, we know that there are certain words that we do not use when we are out and about talking about our work. So we do not use the word research. We do not use the word therapy. Like we are very clear about how this is a program and how we are just trying to improve our wellness and well-being. Like we use, we use words that are true. And we also are just incredibly mindful of the the current stigma that is pervasive throughout the community. So when I was on your podcast last time, Jackie, I talked a lot about my work, so I won't um, belabor it too much. But essentially, the talk in the Black community is something we've been doing for decades within our, um, our culture. And then as clinicians, we need to do better to infuse the talk within our practices And hopefully some of the strategies that we use in therapy can support what parents are already doing in their practices. So that that is my work in a nutshell. And we have to be incredibly mindful that if we come at families like, do you want to be enrolled in a study for therapy? Like we're losing. That's it. Like we're not getting anybody in this study at all. And so the first thing that we have to do is really just ask fundamental questions like, is it hard to talk about race today? Are there a lot of things going on in the news that make you scratch your head? Do you get mad when police officers pull your kids up? Like we ask very fundamental questions that are part of our work, but that allow us to get to the research side of things in in still a genuine way. We, of course, when we have people come into the study, we will give them um, all of their consent and we would never enroll folks without indicating that it is research. I'm saying on the first point of contact, or when we're using our promotional videos or anything like that, it is really about what are the experiences of the family? How can we reach them where they are? How can we use language that they're using and not scare people away? Because Sean and I know just how stigmatizing everything that we're we're doing, everything that we're a part of, mental health, research, therapy, like all of this is, is stigmatizing. So how do we 
tuck that into what people are already concerned about um, so that we can pull people in in a genuine and loving way. And I would just I would just add just quickly to that, you know, to the idea of how can this also change mental health? I think part of it is also, you know, there are some kind of silent or unknown kind of gatekeepers when we think about what what counts as mental health. And so I think the importance of the work that Rihanna just mentioned and, and my work is very similar with with more of a focus on some of the kind of family dynamics and and particularly looking at at, uh, African-American couples um, is just part of it is also being able to position some of these things about the talk or about race and racism as, hey, that's stressful. And that can get in the way of you feeling sad or you feeling nervous about your child being out or get in the way of you or your child having a good night's sleep. And making that connection also as well that the work that we do, right, also is a part of health, is a part of mental health, right? I think that is also validating, right? Because there are, you know, some folks, and and, and Rhea and I both know this, unfortunately, all too well, that's still in, you know, uh, the year of 2020 are still saying, you know, is you know, is it really necessary to have these conversations? Is uh, is racial stress really a thing? Uh, do do black folks have to worry about certain things? Like, is that a reality? And so, when our research or our work can can say uh, yes, it is, and this these are the ways in which we know that this thing that you are you know walking out as a family, as an individual, day by day, like there's actually kind of a whole litany of studies and research behind this that shows that this is a real thing that has real consequences and we want to help you all um you know uh be your best selves in the context of of that reality i think that can be really powerful as well and i definitely appreciate all the work that that you're doing and the response to that question i guess my follow-up question then is when do you think that translation will occur right because I like, for example, like that, you know, it might be a difficult question, right? So the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, put out a policy statement on racism and its impacts on health, health for children and adolescents. And they, we have some, you know, I, you know, happy to be a co, co-author of that, um, that policy statement. And we have some suggestions, right? But a lot of suggestions and recommendations really are still sort of the- theoretical, right? Um, and it's really hard to translate that for, for practice and, and some of the great work that you're doing, right? I know um, Rihanna, Dr. Anderson shared some of the work she did on our podcast, working with families. When do you think that will, will bubble down, like will trickle down, if that's like the right word, yeah. to practice, like for other psychologists, for other providers? Yeah. So first of all, thank you and your amazing colleagues for those recommendations and that the policy initiative. Um, so that's, you know, that's a start, right? That's exactly where we need to be to, to get these recommendations clear for us. So I think from what we know in the implementation literature, it, we're seeing 17 years from something that goes from theory to practice, which is unacceptable in most things that people care about deeply. And so, it, like, I'm certainly not saying that people don't care about certain things. But for me, as a 35-year-old person who really um, 
cannot wait until I'm 52 to say, let's start to chip away at racism. Because at that point, another racial mechanism is going to be in play and whatever we come up with is not going to be good enough at that time to, to deal with what that is. So I think, I think that translational research, when we're talking about like type one to type two and like, how, how do we get it from zero to 17? How do we, how do we reduce this 17 year gap? There are things that we can do today. And, and that goes back to your prior question of like, how do we use media effectively? So in our lab and our, in the work that we do, how can we create multimedia approaches to encourage families to, to do things? So in, in this time of um, social quarantine or social distancing, rather, are there maybe a 30 second clip? Is there a 30 second clip that we can put out from our lab that says, here's the conversational topic we're going to engage in today? Like, here's a nugget. Here's a piece of what we're doing. Let's try to do this in our homes today let us know how it went for you, right? So we're, we're starting to disseminate just bits and pieces of our work. For any paper that we put out, in my lab, we challenge people to, to uh, engage in it in three ways. So maybe that's a blog, maybe it's a video, maybe it's a, a podcast, maybe you go um, on Essence and you try to write an article about it. Like maybe you, you take it, but you need to break it down into three different hands, including your grandma, because if grandma don't understand it, nobody understand it, right? So let's get it to granny and have her say like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I know what you're saying. So that for me, it's, it's about how do we tangibly break down and up what it is that we're doing so that if it does take a longer amount of time to say that this whole practice is efficacious or effective, that we've already been disseminating smaller chunks of it along the way. Yeah. And, and I think that also just speaks to, again, uh, not that I am trying to be a revolutionary, but I think in many ways it also, you know, to answer your question, it requires us to to also, you know, challenge or critique what we consider to be kind of gold standard. We don't obviously want to reduce the threshold right. of rigor. And we also know, right, that there are piecemeal ways as as Dr. Anderson just talked about, there are uh, other ways be beyond the multi-million dollar bell and whistle way to to kind of translate um, research. And so I think also having folks who are, again, quote unquote, gatekeepers of knowledge and of translation being amenable and open to taking, you know, what we know and and translating it in some kind of novel ways and not always needing to wait for the, well, did this go through the super extra ultra rigor? Like, well, yeah, okay. That's going to take 17 years and we may not have that. Um, but in the meanwhile, here are the things we can do that also requires a, a kind of reconceptualization um, when we think about translational research and work. <clears throat> so just a quick, just a quick follow-up question as I was listening to you, Dr. Jones is the fact that, we have traditional traditional models for research predicated and built on a white normative, okay, educational structure, right? So in some ways I feel like, right, you want to be a revolutionary. <laughs> I think I say go for it, right? Because we, we know that the current context, right? The current historical con educational, that's why there's so few, I think, providers of color, right? They're systems that are set up. So 
there's got to be a way, I think, to work within a system, work outside a system to dis not dismantle it, disrupt it. I mean, in some instances you may need to dismantle it, right? So I applaud the work that you're doing because again, like you said, 17 years to end racism mm-hmm. or to even, uh, you know, unpack the stress, the toxic stress of racism and the consequences of that, I think is too long. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. Thank you for being revolutionary. Right. But I know you also have your, you know, institutions. I have my institutions as well. And I, and Thank you. Thank you for your, thank you for your service. So that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> um, Much appreciated. So I just wanted to trans- transition a little bit to, to sort of what, what we're talking about, right? Some of your revolutionary acts, right? In the sense of, um, I recently saw that you hosted a, a, a webinar, a mentoring webinar, right? The Authentic, Agentic, and Afrocentric webinar. And I was just wondering if that's part of, that's also part of your empire as well, right? Are you trying to help the pipeline, right? By doing, doing initiatives like those webinars. And then how does, how does that work ultimately address mental health needs? Mm. Yeah. So first of all, we appreciate that, uh, that recognition, that shout out. I, I would say absolutely. I mean, honestly, you know, speaking for myself and then I will give um, obviously Dr. Anderson her opportunity to speak for herself. The whole reason that I am where I am at today, Jackie, myself, even, you know, like you just said, working within a given institution within the academy is to help uh, do my part to whatever uh, capacity that I can to increase uh, the, you know, the pipeline um, to, to improve the number of, of researchers um, who are black and brown, of uh, clinicians who are black and brown, of folks who have uh policy orientations who are black and brown, um, folks who consider themselves scholar activists who are black and brown, right? To be able to be in in those spaces, right? To say, hey, your your voice, your contributions, we need you, right? Which was a big part of that that given webinar is like trying to to break down some strategies to navigate this very interesting set of politics that can sometimes happen within institutions as you're trying to basically uh, obtain, you know, fire. I, I often think about kind of like a, for thinking a mythology, like a Prometheus uh, sort of kind of model, right? We're trying to teach folks to kind of go and steal fire from the quote unquote gods to bring it back to the people and so how can we support folks? And I think that webinar and, and our continued expansion of trying to support um, the next generations is, is in service of that. How can we help support you while you go and get that fire, right? And then bring the fire back to the folks to set this whole thing up and, you know, and make it great, set this whole thing ablaze. So um, I, I think that that is certainly something that is near and dear to, to, to our hearts. Oh, you want me to follow that up? Oh, okay. Thanks, Sean. Um, So the two thoughts that I'm having about this are um, if you do family-based work and you learn about generational status and what happens to the third generation of folks, like you learn a lot about the third generation. And then you learn about the generation that comes after that and like the revolution. So it's it's a really interesting thing if you just kind of think about time and you think about when movements occur and like when uh, folks start to rebel and start to say like, nah, like this, this ain't it. 
um, it's really after this third generation because people start to um, they tend to assimilate into culture after a while. And once assimilation happens, that's where you see everybody's ignorance just pop out. Like, no, people are not the same. People are not treated equally. Like that is when people see the rage and the frustration and they try to, um, to act against the, or like rage against the machine. Right. So within psychology, like we've been innovating for three generations. We actually see growth in black psychology that, that bucks the system of, assimilation and acculturation, like it really goes against what we know about the more time people spend in a certain place or um, the, the more generations you have within a like a, a culture that people are getting used to it. Like our generation and our, our third generation here in black psychology is like, nah, like absolutely not. Like y'all have figured out that blackness is associated with these things. And then the next generation figured out it was really discrimination. And then people found out mediators and moderators so now our generation is like, oh, we taking all this information and we creating interventions, we create a media, we create it like we're just innovating in ways that like once we figured out the truth, um, once we saw what was happening displayed by um, empirical findings or theory or whatever, like we we are just running with it and we are not um, accepting what's happening. So that's a long story to get us to the point of with respect to the, the mentoring situation, we were supposed to be in San Diego. We were supposed to be, you know, filming some of our mental health minute podcasts outside in 80 degree weather, not in Detroit, Michigan, where I'm looking outside and it's rainy, but it's okay. Um, we were supposed to be doing all these things. And then the, the virus had us really think about that's not possible in person, which is the story of our mental health minute this year. Like why did we start podcasting? Because we weren't, in person and we had to figure out how do we innovate how do we create when that's not the case so we were met with this kind of space of we're not going to have the ability to shoot our videos as we anticipated the podcast we were going to have in person in san diego isn't going to happen and the mentoring program that was supposed to happen in san diego can't happen either so it wasn't ours but um the some organizations we were a part of um, we're supposed to have this men the mentoring, a few different mentoring sessions. And so we wanted to be of service to that, but also really thinking about everything we've, we've talked about on this call. How do we encourage the next generation to say we're not, we don't have to fit within this Eurocentric lens. We don't have to think of the academy in this traditional way. We've got so much knowledge and we're only growing and building, like how can we take all these things and put it in an hour um, chat, which which ended up going quite a bit after and we still you know, are responding to emails and stuff about it. So how do we, how do we give space, voice, time, energy when we don't have the traditional means of doing it? And, that, and that's how all that came together for the webinar. I'd like to thank Dr. Jones and Dr. Anderson for joining us today on What is Black Podcast. Please check out our Mental Health Minute. They're on the web at ourmhm.com. Also, you can listen to their podcast on Apple Podcast, and they're on Instagram at rmhm, our Mental Health Minute. Thanks for joining us this week on What is Black Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And for more information about the podcast, our blogs, and subscribe to our upcoming newsletter, go to our website at whatisblack.co. 
As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode. And don't forget to leave us a review so we can continue to bring you fresh content. Until next time, thank you for listening.